When it comes to our calling to love God and love our neighbor, one of the most heated discussions taking place in the culture at large and in the church these days is how to fulfill this calling in response to the LGBTQ issue. If you're like me, you wonder about how to navigate these unfolding realities in your home, your youth group, and your relationships. And as with all issues, we run the risk of listening more to the spirit of the times than we listen to the Word of God. What does it mean to remain faithful to God's will and way regarding sexuality and gender? One voice addressing these questions is Rosaria Butterfield, a lesbian activist who experienced a radical and unexpected conversion to Christianity that turned her life upside down. Join me as I chat with Rosaria Butterfield about her conversion, along with how to understand, address, and navigate issues of sexuality and gender on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Bueller from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. Today uh, is a little different. We're not in our studio. We've gone remote. I'm at my church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Westminster Presbyterian Church, where we're going to have a conversation with someone that I'm meeting personally for the first time, but I've gotten to know her through her books. It's Rosario Butterfield, and we are just so grateful that you're here. Uh, she's come up from North Carolina, right? Durham, North Carolina. Durham, North Carolina. And you are here to speak at a conference this weekend on your latest book, which is uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. She has written extensively before. Her first book was The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, An English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. And the second book was Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert sexual, uh, on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. Now, just a little bit of history here. And that is probably about six or seven years ago now, as I was navigating issues of culture, issues related to sexuality, biblical sexuality, sexual integrity, really were coming to the fore in the culture in ways that we had never really seen before. And I was involved in a phone conversation with some of my friends in the youth ministry world where we were working to navigate how to best uh, train youth workers in these matters to respond and teach uh, good biblical principles to students and to parents, to families that, that would yield um, a God-glorifying embrace of sexuality, human sexuality. And our conversation stopped. It, it, it kind of stuttered a bit and tripped up as there became a divide in the room when someone said, if you think you're gonna be able to push back on issues of LGBTQ from the perspective of the scriptures, you're wrong, you can't do it. And when I got off the phone, uh, I felt like I had entered a new world and decided that I was going to prayerfully endeavor to read as much as I could from every side, mm -hmm. uh, both That's in right. the church and out of the church and one of the books that I picked up as I was reading was Rosaria's book, uh, 
openness, or excuse me, secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. And I was struck not only by the story, but by the way she, with her story, was processing these issues from a biblical perspective. And much of what I was reading at the time, there were a lot of exegetical and hermeneutical gymnastics Mm -hmm. that people were engaging in. And I I felt that after reading some of those, they could be summarized like, here's what I have done with the God of the scriptures. But when I read this book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, I was reading someone who was saying, here's what the God of the scriptures has done with me. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you because I think the perspective you offer is the right one. And it keeps us tethered and I've benefited greatly from this. So I would love for you to share your story because this is just, it's compelling. Yeah, well, and it's a mess too. And I think that's, you know, that's an important part of it too, that this is, um, when we come to Christ, you know, it is it is a very messy process, and the more the more sin that we have lived, the more life that we have lived, um, the the more the more we have to repent of, the more we have to learn. Um, so, I I um, was a gay rights activist in New York um, at the time that I met Ken Smith, who was my neighbor and would later become my pastor. And this is in the '90s in New York. This is New York where. The AIDS virus has ravaged the gay community and has transformed the gay community. Prior to AIDS, people might not know this, but lesbian women and gay men had very little to do with each other. Gay men thought we were a bunch of social, politically active prigs, probably not untrue. Uh, Lesbian women thought gay men were a bunch of sexual hedonists, probably not untrue. And we just lived our very separate lives. And then AIDS started killing people and we started living differently. And what I mean by that is everyone's home in my gay community in New York was open one night of the week to mm. simply hear your heart, to stand between you and a scary diagnosis, to stand between you and suicide. And, it, and so that's how we lived. We were a, a, a community very much given to hospitality. And I tell people that the, the, uh, the, the hospitality gifts I use today as a reformed Presbyterian pastor's wife, I learned back in my lesbian community in New York. Um, much common grace is in that community and much heartbreak as well. So, And that's something most of us don't realize. Yeah, well, you know, God put eternity on the hearts of all people. So we have no, if we don't realize it, it's because we haven't, you know, we, we tend to make everything in the scripture we don't want to do a metaphor and everything we do want to do, you know, today's agenda item. So yeah. it's important, you know, any discussion, any debate about homosexuality is primarily a debate about scriptures. You know, what we really disagree with, what I disagree with with West Hill, what I disagree with with Matthew Vines, what I disagree with with Preston Sprinkle, what I, you know, my disagreements are primarily theological. And because we have important theological differences, we're going to arrive at a different application of this scripture. But, but you know, at this point, I was happily in a lesbian relationship. It was my, my second Um, I had not always been a lesbian. I had in my twenties dated men, um, never, I don't know what to say. It never really took, I don't know what that means, but you know, I I wasn't, I didn't despise men and I, I, my parents had had a pretty crummy marriage, so I wasn't planning on going and getting married. Um, but I was at, at times romantically involved with men at times sexually involved with men. It wasn't impossible. It just, I just, you know, I just didn't really care for it. 
And then I met my first lesbian lover, and all of a sudden, life came together for me and made sense. I mean, my life went from black and white to color, mm. and it was transformative. How old were you then? I was uh, 26 when I was teetering on the fence and 28 when I finally just said, I'm gay. Mm. And, and very much at that time, I would have said, this is who I am. You know, I will tell you my story. I tried it. Okay. I, I, I'm a good researcher. I've always been a good researcher. I don't reject things without thinking about them. I tried it. Not for me. I am a lesbian. This is who I am. And immediately threw myself into LGBTQ politics, of which there is always much to do. Um, and here's why. I've come to understand this later. And, and this is important for our listeners to hear, that if you cannot have a blessing from God, and if you are sinning against God, you cannot have a blessing from God. If you cannot have a blessing from God, you will demand it from men. Hmm. And that is because the human heart craves blessing. Um, it, is, it is deep. We are hardwired for that, for eternity. So um, uh, was a successful professor, enjoyed my students, um, was primarily hired to teach. Um, I was, I was, my PhD is in English literature, 19th century. So Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin are my men. Um, taught courses in that, taught courses in 19th century lit. Mostly, though, was, was recruited, hired, mentored, and tenured to teach in queer theory. And so that is what I did. Developed courses, was successful at teaching. I've always enjoyed teaching. Um, Love the classroom. Had a little stick on my desk, still do. It says I would rather be wrong on an important point than right on a trivial one. Have believed that for as long as I was the thinking person. And that's, what's re that's what really got me in trouble here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because I decided after my tenure book was written that I would write a book on the religious right to try to figure out why people like you hated people like me. And here's what I wanted you to know. I'm a good citizen. I'm a good caregiver. I'm a good neighbor. What's your problem with me? Why can't you leave consenting adults alone? I don't want your God. I don't want your blessing. Nobody talked about gay Christianity. We would have thought that was wacky. If somebody had told me that there is a celibate gay Christian living next door, I would have said, gay means you're having sex with your, your lover. What are you talking about? This makes no sense to me. So I just didn't understand why you people wouldn't leave me alone. Now, because I'm an English professor, I couldn't just go to like a you know, the Baptist convention and interview people. I actually had to read the Bible. And as soon as I started reading it, as a researcher, I knew I was in over my head. Uh, don't know uh, let, the original languages. You know, that's that was so admirable to me because we don't do that with what we might call the other side. Yeah, but you know, here's what you need to know about we professors. Need to do that. All yeah. professors, we work really hard. Yeah. We work 80 hours a week. We're not, I mean, I understand that there's a lot going on in the university today that looks really wacky, but I want you to know those people are, are, are working their tails off. And, and I think, you know, one of our Psalms talks about, um, you know, I think it's 84, that the, 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 even, you know, the, just the fact that you're striving doesn't mean you're striving on the right side of things. But don't think uh, the wicked don't strive. Right. The, please don't think we're sitting around painting our toenails. That was not it. Um, and so I started reading the Bible. Um, the, the strange group of people called the Promise Keepers came to town and had a little rally at the university. And 
I wrote what I thought was just a little editorial in a newspaper while they gave me a whole page. They titled it, Promise Keepers, Message is a Danger to Democracy, Syracuse University Prof Declares. And I, you know, at that moment on, um, became a public figure and got lots of mail. Um, still get lots of mail. Got hate mail and got fan mail. And I'm going to tell you, both are odious to me. Both have always been odious to me. So I would just throw them away. I'd get a fan mail, put it in a box this side, hate mail, put it in a box this side. And one letter came from Ken Smith, pastor then of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Syracuse. It was neither hate mail nor fan mail. Didn't know what to do with it. It was disarming. It was the kindest letter of opposition I had ever received. And, and Ken, at the end of his letter, said, listen, these are big topics that you're talking about. I'd love to get together and have dinner. Um, would you have dinner with my wife and I? And and my first thought was fantastic. You know, I thought this would be the best thing for my research that ever happened. I don't, <laughs> I don't know this stuff. Yeah. But here's somebody with the right pedigree. This is, this is, Ken Smith is my new unpaid research assistant. You bet I'll eat with you. So that's how it started. Yeah. And then how did that unfold? Talk about because it, it was a couple of years then. Oh, yeah. I really? Mean, I, I mean, just a baby steps. Oh, yeah. I mean, as I, you read I, about I've this. been interviewed by folks like you, and they'll say, oh, and how many weeks right. did Ken? No. No. If I had 500 meals at his house, that would be a low ball on it. He took me in. Ken Smith read the scriptures, and he knows what we're supposed to do hmm. with the lesbian next door. See, the gospel imperative is to seek strangers, to welcome them as neighbors, and by God's grace, watch them become part of the family of God. That's not going to happen when you share the Bible like it's a fortune cookie. Yeah. So he took it slowly. He also knew that I wasn't ready to come to church. He brought the church to me uh, faithfully, regularly. He latched on to me and he wouldn't let go. I couldn't dodge him even when I tried. And I did try. Because about two years into reading this Bible, it was going to kill me. And I realized it. I was at dinner, and my transgendered friend Jill cornered me in the kitchen and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you, and I'm scared. What is going on with you? And we sat down and closed the door, and I said, Jill, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? And Jill said, Rosaria, I know it's true. I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I'll pray for you. That was a powerful encounter. And if you want to know what gay rights activists talk about in the kitchen after work, that's it. I'm not kidding. I mean, you know, these are deep questions. And that encounter was powerful. It gave me permission to actually explore this Bible for my own, not just, but... Her comment also enraged me. I was a gay rights activist. I didn't need healing. Not even the Bible said I needed healing. It said I needed repentance. I didn't like either one of those. But that was the turn for me. I started re reading the Bible for other reasons. And that's when I was ready to throw it away. Was there a particular section of the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, genre of literature as a literature yeah, professor yeah, yeah. that really grabbed you? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the thing that really grabbed me was the way this Bible is a unified biblical revelation. 
what really grabbed me is the way that Genesis 3 and Romans 1 are bookends of a worldview, of a narrative nobody had explained to me. What really grabbed me was um, the Bible's diagnosis of me, which I dodged, you know, for a couple of years, of course, because that's, you know, that's, that's a very painful thing. But what really grabbed me was this idea that gay was not who I was, but how I was. Okay, that, it t- talk about that a bit, because that jumped out at me, that that's just a brilliant statement there. Well, it's just, but it's, it's, it's the scriptures right. speaking out of Romans 1, that the Bible is Adam's thumbprint on my life. You see, if we really believe this Bible, I mean, and I'm going to tell you, at this point, I wasn't even really really believing this Bible. I was just reading it and taking notes on what it said. You can't refute something if you, if you can't, you know, reflect it accurately. So I was simply trying to make sure I wasn't making a straw man out of my argument. But, but Romans 1 makes it clear that homosexuality is not who I am. It is Adam's thumbprint on me. I think it also leaves, and but I'm, by thumbprint, I mean everybody is born in Adam. We are all downstream of Genesis 3, which means we are all born with the desire for something that God hates. Mm-hmm. We are all born craving a sin long before we could say our first name. We are, and so when, when I hear people say I'm born this way, I give zero pushback because we're all born this way, one way or another. And so, so for me, hearing that and then having to wrestle with one other issue, and it was a big one, and it was the question of, of whether God had the authority to say that to me. Because, you know, I was a postmodern professor. Hmm. So I, I had a, I had a, complicated relationship to authority on the one point if you were my student and it was Friday and you owed a paper to me and you didn't turn it in until Monday I would invoke my authority on the other hand when God wanted to tell me his interpretation of homosexuality I realized I didn't want to be the one being judged I wanted to be the one who does the judging and so this Bible was complex it was really it was really getting under me but but it it, I had to really stop and think about it is homosexuality how I am or who I am? Because that makes all the difference in the world. And for the parents listening who have children who have come home and said, Mom, I'm gay, that who-how thing is really important. And I would say, speaking from somebody who's got a lot of tire treads on her face from this conversation and has been through both, both sides of it, that it is the most loving thing you can do to in your heart not believe any of that. Hmm. To in your heart, when your daughter says, I'm a lesbian, to think to yourself, no, you're not. No, you're not, because there's no such thing as a lesbian. There's lesbian sex, there's lesbian culture, but it's not a, it's not a category of humanity. God gives us one category of humanity. We are male and female image bearers of a holy God with a soul that will last forever somewhere and a gendered body that will go with it. Satan has very successfully turned that upside down. And whole sectors of the church are buying it. He wants you to believe that sexual orientation is like one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like, like it's, it's as demic to truth as truth itself. It was invented by Freud about 150 years ago. Okay, it is not, it's not an ancient idea at all. 
and you'll never find it in the Bible because it's not something that it's not something that is an accurate reflector of personhood. But we live in a day where we're told no sexual sexual orientation is immutable, but sexual difference, oh, that's mutable. Do you see what that does? That completely flips. It yeah. turns completely upside down. Genesis one twenty seven. And from a mom dad perspective, what you need to know is that as soon as you're in a world where everything has been flipped entirely, that's the world that Satan wants you to believe. So your job is to hold the ankles of your daughter who's hanging over the cliff, just like Ken and Floyd Smith held mine. Yeah. I, you know, in thinking about this, we spend a lot of time, uh, students do this, adults do this, parents do this, families do this. We spend a lot of time uh, immersed in cultural catechism, cultural catechesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture is shaping us and form- forming us because mm-hmm. we spend so much time immersed in media. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do that and then engage in our other uh, pursuits, we tend to let our time listening to God, studying God's Word, it, it diminishes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where a lot of this slide has occurred in the church. And I know in all your books you write about this, the importance of God's Word. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the parents who are, you know, you're saying they're commissioned to hold their angle, ankles right. as they're dangling over the cliff. Just talk about the importance of Scripture study. Yeah, absolutely. For a mom and a dad. I mean, absolutely. getting our priorities right yeah, yeah, time-wise. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so much. Moms and dads, you are in the hardest battle of your life right now. And, and I would say that you probably feel like some kind of accidental missionary. Like you were just airdropped on a mission field. Nobody gave you a language study. Nobody gave you the inoculation. You don't even have a bottle of water. And so it is a very serious, it is a crisis. I mean, it is a genuine crisis. But, but for you to successfully hold onto your son or daughter's ankles or your grandchildren's ankles or your neighbor's, somebody's got to be hanging onto you. And so here are the things you absolutely need. You need to be deeply tethered in the, into, in the Word of God. You need to be reading it, washing yourself in it hours a day. This is a lonely season, and it's a great season to start memorizing whole books of the Bible. Do you know that in closed countries, before people can come to uh, come to a, a church, quote unquote, church membership in these home churches, often they are asked to memorize whole books of the Bible because the reason is, when you're in prison and they're beating you, you're going to need it. Yeah. This is our time too, so memorize this. The other is make sure you are a member of a Bible-believing church. If you are not a member of a Bible-believing church, you are in a rowboat with a toothpick for an oar. You need good teaching, and God is going to use the pastor and elders of your church to hold on to you. So those are the two things that you need before you can be of any help. And the other thing you want to do is find a good trail guide. And here's my favorite recommendation. Angela Yuan and Christopher Yuan, their book, Out of a Far Country. Don't bring my books, bring their book. Bring Out of a Far Country. And then once you're done with Out of a Far Country, read their next book, yeah. which is called Holy Sexuality. But it's a, it's a powerful book because it gives the parents' side 
Angela prayed for Christopher for years. And for the first 10 of those years, it only looked like it was getting worse. And Angela teaches parents. She leads you into seeing how you can live on promises when what you see is mayhem. Mm. That's good. And, and you're in good company. You know what? Moses had to do that too. Everybody in Hebrews 11 had to do that too. So you're in good company, but it might be the first time you're thinking about it. But don't try to do this alone. You cannot ask your son or daughter to bend the knee to Jesus if you yourself are a Lone Ranger Christian with no church membership over you. If you are playing a me and Jesus life right now, on what grounds are you asking your son and daughter to not do the same? Mm, that's really good. I, this is a great conversation. We need to take a break. I do want to mention quickly that any of the resources we mention here, whether it be books, the Christopher Yuan book you just mm -hmm. mentioned, um, you know, websites, whatever it is, folks who are faithful listeners know, you can go to our homepage, cpyu.org, look for the player for this particular episode of Youth Culture Matters, and beneath the player on that page will be links uh, to all the resources so that you can learn more and, and even access those if you'd like to get a hold of those. Stick with us. We'll be right back. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate their emerging sexuality to the glory of God, we've launched a sexual integrity initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our Sexual Integrity Initiative and a growing number of resources for free by visiting the website at sexualintegrityinitiative.com. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're having a conversation with Rosaria Butterfield, and she's the author of several books. I mentioned them already. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which really tracks her own personal story of how the Lord called her and, and brought her uh, to be his own, and her conversion story. And then Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. And then her latest book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which uh, she's weaving a lot of that in and through the content of that book. I just finished reading it last night, and it's an excellent book. I want to shift here or actually take off on something you mentioned already. I am this idea of who you are versus how you are mm -hmm. in terms of the identity conversations. Right. And the, the you know, all the arguments back and forth about right. the term for, you know, Christians, gay Christian. Right. I really want to spend some time talking about that because I think that is it's so key. important. Yeah. Identity I, I often say that when I was a kid, we never used that word. I mean, we would, no. the only time I can think about identity being an issue is if we were watching like a, a spy movie and someone changed their yes. identity, right? Okay, right. so they right. put on a disguise. Well, now identity seems to be part of the language it is. of the self-awareness of young and old alike in our culture. It is. And it's a huge issue. And for yes. the Christian this is what, I mean, this is at the root of who we are. Right. And I really believe we need to get the terms right. I do too. Uh, because the terms are indicative of, of guiding principles and how we live and how we see ourselves. Right. And youth workers and parents, sometimes it's so easy to fall into 
you know, kind of marching with the culture and using the language that the culture uses, but we're called to be countercultural. And I think this is an area yeah. where it's really important. So I'd love to hear and you I talk about too, this. And I would say, too, as youth workers, you know, you spend so much of your... You are in the ethics camp. You are, a, you are trying to apply the good news of the gospel to better the lives of these children. That's called biblical ethics. But here's the deal about ethics. If your ethics doesn't start with the right anthropology, yes. it's going to go sour fast. Okay, it's going to get really bad, maybe not today, but give it five years. And that's what you're seeing in the gay Christian movement. At best, the gay Christian movement is a theology that is anemic and weak. It is a lot of milk drinking. But here's what happens if you start with the wrong biblical anthropology. It's not just milk drinking. It's sour milk drinking. Hmm. So because of this audience, because you want your ethics to be one that blesses people you don't want to start in the wrong place this is not a this is not a philosophy lecture our lives are on the line so so, so yeah let, let me just say so this is this is foundational it is foundational not optional. it is not optional yeah and would, would would i you know I, I let me go down this road because i think this is important i'm sorry to interrupt no. you with this but you know i one of the things that drives me you know, as a, as a human being, as a dad, as someone in ministry, I don't want to mislead people. No, I don't want to mislead my children. I I, and I, you know, sometimes we read what's said about, you know, those who mislead children. It's, you know, the millstone around the neck. And we yes. equate that with, you know, sort of a, uh, well, I would never consciously no. mislead kids, but we unconsciously no. do it when we choose the wrong foundation. Absolutely. No, I, so we I have to be conscious of that. That's think, why this is important. I think it is hugely important. It's hugely important. And so what we start with, with identity, biblically speaking, is, is what it means to be made in the image of God and then what, what it means to be redeemed by Christ, living in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. What we're competing against, and this is important to know, we don't li- our Christian life doesn't happen in a vacuum. You need to know what you're competing against. Right now, you're competing against a 2015 Supreme Court decision that did more than just legalize gay marriage in all 50 states. It introduced the idea of dignitary harm. Justice Kennedy, this is something that that, that people just need to know. Justice Kennedy made the argument in 2015 that to deny, quote-unquote, gay people the right to get married is to is to deny them dignity. And the reason is because homosexuality was considered to be not just a, a, a how somebody lives, but a civil rights category of personhood. And what Christians need to do is, before we just run with that, is we need to examine that and say, is that true? Is it true? And what we, what we need to then do with Scripture is realize that what it means to be born in Adam means that we are all born with an original sin that distorts our desires and distorts our, our sense of self, but also condemns us. And actual sin, we, we face actual sin every day. What's actual sin? Actual sin is when you're sent to Walmart to buy socks. 
and somebody really gorgeous walks down the aisle mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you are in full lust mode. You didn't go to Walmart to buy lust. You went there to buy socks. But actual sin, just it just captures you. And then the other thing that Christians have to deal with is indwelling sin. And indwelling sin is where you have allowed an original sin to fester. You're mad at God for it. You don't feel like it should be called sin. Indwelling sin is a little bit like, here's this baby tiger, and it followed you home. And you opened the door and you brought it in. And you're petting it. It's got nice stripes. Oh, it's getting big, so you buy it a collar and leash. You're confident that you can just control this little tiger. And then one day, it eats you alive. And in 30 seconds, everything you have ever wanted in life is destroyed. And if that sounds harsh, just read Genesis without stopping. Mm -hmm. Don't read it like it's a fortune cookie. Don't read it verse by verse. Sit down for an hour and read the whole book. And you will see that it's a bloodbath. And so if you believe this to be true, see, this is the central paradigm. Grace rests on the understanding that sin cannot be tolerated. And when Jesus gave you every drop of his blood, and when he died on a cross, and when he was resurrected, what his blood did was crush the sin that's crushing you. The blood of Jesus does not make an ally to the sin that is crushing you. There is no such thing as a gay Christian. If by gay Christian you mean, this is just how you were born, I get that. If by gay Christian you mean, your desires are morally neutral and just acting on them is not, that's how crazy people speak. Mm -hmm. that, that is, I'm telling you something, that is the most dangerous idea for the church to accept. Or you can even, we can parse this even more deeply. If you tell me that you know that your, your desires are distorted, but they're only sinful if you act on them, you are just holding an explosive close to your heart. And this is the challenge for the person who struggles against same-sex attraction, but it's also the challenge for every single human being on the planet. You, Christian, me, we all need to learn how to hate our sin without hating ourself. Hmm. So we often say that, uh, you know, and, and I'm a Reformed guy. People know that. And I talk openly about having a rich um, uh, a rich sense, if, if there can be such a thing, a uh, deep sense of my own human depravity. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, yeah. we can't understand grace no. or the need for Jesus no. without that. So yeah. a combination of that. And then I know in your books you also talk about, which is interesting because of your, you know, how you talked about originally your sense of authority. Mm -hmm. um, you know, wanting to be the authority, not having authority right. exercised over you. But a a sense not only of biblical authority, but of understanding church structure, ecclesiology, yeah, and yeah. church discipline. Right. I will just say personally, those things are lifelines for me. They are lifelines for me. And for me as well. Yeah. For and we shun well. those things. Our yeah. culture is telling us to shun yeah. those things. To Well, we shun those things because somehow we think that we can just have a me and Jesus theology. But then we t get up and we get all uppity and mad when other people's me and Jesus theology contradicts our me and Jesus theology. I was actually on a plane recently with a well-known public speaker and her staff, and they were no kidding having this discussion about 
you know, God told me on Wednesday that we need to do this on Thursday. No, God told me on Friday that we need to do this on Saturday. Well, it was, I mean, it was a theological mess. And what would be very helpful is if we would come to an understanding that the scriptures speak, but we have to listen to these. We have to listen to what this has to say. But how we're going to hear this has a lot to do with how our church is going to communicate to us because because there's an order that is um, ordained in Scripture for your care, for your blessing. That particular pastor, that particular under-shepherd, that local church. And it's also about where where we meet and end the problem of crushing loneliness. Because our church is our church family. The blood of Christ is actually thicker than the blood of biology. Hmm. That's not that is not a, right. a dismissal of the of the of the of the of the biological family. It's just to say that that you know, your the blood of Christ that connects you to these people is not something that you are to put into a small corner. So those are hugely important. But I think I think what's important is to remember that that we're all easily deceived. And to be deceived, um, the, the way that the Bible understands deception is, is a lot deeper than the way our English dictionaries do. To be deceived, biblically speaking, is to be taken captive by an evil force to do its bidding. Hmm. Um, once you're taken captive, you can't see clearly. Right? Romans tells us, while we were yet dead. Yeah. Right. When did When did the Lord... Come to us. Dead people don't talk. Dead dead people don't debate. So I think that regardless of what our theological branding is, what we want to know is what do the scriptures say? The scriptures say that the grace we need, we need because the sin that we are struggling with is inside us. We, We are not victims of it. We are agents of it. John, the Gospel of John says, we love the darkness. I understand it was unchosen sin. I really do. You didn't wake up one day and say, hey, Adam, pick me. I want to desire adultery. I want to desire homosexuality. Me, I want to be a liar. Nobody does that. But once your thumbprint has been rooted until the day you die, Galatians 5 says you will be struggling with the power of God mm-hmm. so that you do not do the thing you want to do. So if you tell me, but you don't understand, this sin feels good. Of course your sin feels good. If your sin doesn't feel good, you're doing it wrong. You need a sin coach. <laughs> sin always feels yeah. good to your flesh. And there's a war between the flesh and the spirit. But for parents, what's important is that you get standing right next to your son or daughter in this struggle. You're not fighting with your son or daughter. You're not having a worldview debate about what the scriptures say about soteriology. God forbid. I'm going to tell you that for the 500 plus meals I had at Ken and Floyd Smith's house, that's not what happened. He stood with me and said, well, let's open the scriptures together. Let's see what this looks like together. And that will make all the difference in the world. Hmm. That child is not your enemy. That the, the, Ken Smith didn't look at me at the gay, as the gay rights neighbor 
who had just penned, you know, co-authored the first domestic partnership policy at a major university, he could have easily just looked at me as his enemy that needed to be shut up. But he didn't. He looked at me as an image bearer of yes. the Holy God. Deceived, but also deep down a beautiful thing. And I think what we're struggling with right now is our theology doesn't go wide enough. Sometimes we have a theology that will let you know very clearly that people like the person I used to be was an absolute sinner. That's great. But your theology needs to be able to expand wide enough to understand why Rosaria Butterfield 25 years ago was a sinner, but also potentially the nicest neighbor on the block. If your theology cannot understand how both common grace and saving grace work together, you're going to get caught in... You're going to get stuck in a place where you where you just give up and say, "Well, I'm sorry. I just it's I can't play this game anymore. Mm. Just whatever." As you talk about all this, I, a thought keeps coming to mind that many of us as believers, we someone's involved in a lifestyle or habitual mm. behavior, habitual sin that we know the scriptures call sin, and 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 we become very pharisaical. That's a whole nother right, conversation, right. but part of that is that we 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 desire these folks to live into who they are in the image of god but we don't treat them that way right and right. that you know and i as i've been thinking through these things and reading and uh pondering all this yes. i realized you know i've done that yeah I, i've yeah, done yeah. that i do that all the time i yeah. mean i it, it, hopefully it was more habitual in the past yeah than it is now, but I think that's uh, that's important. I, Can just, I weigh yeah, in on that, though? Because yeah. the other thing that we do is we look at our, our children who are de- identifying now as gay or lesbian, and the other real danger is we just think, oh, if just we can just find a nice wife for Johnny, this will all yes. come to an end. And I'm going to tell you, it's not that I, I am a biblically married woman. I love my husband. I am so grateful to God. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I am not a struggler. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you, we all struggle against sin, mm-hmm. but biblical marriage is a wonderful, it's exactly what the Bible says. It is a wonderful curative, truly, of, of many of the sexual sins that ALS. But if anybody had come to me at this time in my life and said, hey, you know the answer is biblical marriage, and we want you to go and, you know, I would have run like you know, Satan himself was chasing me. And that is because you don't know how terrifying that is to hear. Um, from a, from a, the perspective of a woman identifying as a lesbian, even the thought of, of, of um, what, what would have to take place in a marriage bed hmm. is terrifying. Um, I think from the male perspective, the thought of having to somehow initiate all of that is crushing. And so please know that people like me were never converted out of homosexuality. We were converted out of unbelief. And, and, for, and then we were single for a while. And, and for some people, they were single for a long while. Singleness is not something to be fixed or fixed up. It's not something to, to, be, to be despised. Um, let people be. Allow their callings to reveal themselves. But don't start matchmaking. Because you confuse the reality of what the means of grace deliver you from. You want the means of grace for your son or daughter. No, you don't want them to be lonely. But you know what? There's a lot of lonely marriages out there. And so if you don't want your son or daughter to be lonely, you want them to be in a vital and vibrant church. One where the family of God lives like a family of God. 
Mm-hmm. And so, so that's just my caution. I'm sorry. Did yeah. I interrupt? No, no, no. That's you, good. I we need to take a break. But you, you all of there. this, I'm thinking about, you know, your story, and it's a great example of something I just saw. I love the way this was phrased. My Anglican friends have a conference coming up, and it's on preaching, the power of preaching, mm-hmm. and the title. I don't know if you've seen this, but the title, the theme of the conference is. The Word of God does the work of God. Yes, it does. Amen. And That's right. I, you know, I think so many times Let's we just... Let's believe that. <laughs> yeah, so many other add-ons, even right. in our youth ministry world. Right. You know, we, yeah. we... I mean, if some of yeah. that stuff is fun, it's, you know, we, we have a good time, and I think we need to enjoy our time with students, but, man, that just... we we I think, functionally, we forget... Right. that it is the Word of God that does the, the work of God. Well, let's take a break. We'll be right back. Tens of thousands of kids have been trained by their parents and youth workers to think Christianly about music and media with our How to Use Your Head to Guard Your Heart 3D Guide to Making Wise Media Choices. This easy-to-use teaching tool needs to be in your youth ministry toolbox if you desire to teach your students to integrate their faith into all of life. Jesus calls us to follow Him, and that includes following Him into the six to nine hours a day of screen time that shape and mold the beliefs and behaviors of our kids. To learn more about our 3D Media Evaluation Guide and to order a copy for every member of your youth group, go to our website at cpyu.org teach your kids to engage with media to the glory of God. Rosaria Butterfield's been helping us understand uh, what the scriptures say about identity. We've talked about LGBTQ matters. We've listened to a bit of her story. And I want to encourage you all to read her books. I mean, they are so rich. Lisa and I have read them and one of the things we consistently say is uh, this is the kind of reading we like to do where uh, rather than rifling through pages, we are constantly stopping and thinking about and pondering a sentence or a paragraph or a point. And I love reading books like that. One of my friends and heroes in the faith is uh, David Wells. Do you know David Wells, the theologian? I only, only through his wonderful books. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and his books are like that. Yeah. And so take that as a compliment. I do. Thank that, you. Uh, you know, this is what I love about this. And youth workers, I think you'll really appreciate it, parents as well. Uh, just testimony to God's grace and God's power and God's sovereignty and the power of God's word. Uh, that, that's what I, I grasped with the first book was just how someone's hospitality and willingness to spend time and talk about the scriptures was transformative. God's Spirit used that in transformative ways. Well, I want to ask you, while we have you here, just to give us some advice. You've given us lots of advice already, but we have a lot of parents who listen. We have a lot of youth workers who listen. Mm -hmm. And you're a parent, and I know you've spoken to youth workers in the past. You understand that. You're in church ministry with your husband Mm -hmm. uh, down there in North Carolina. Just go ahead and shoot from the hip. I mean, yeah, what's yeah. what's burning for you that we need to hear? Well, I think the first thing is to not fall into the trap of political pragmatism. Mm. So to not accept the terms of the world and then, and then try to kind of craft out of that a few little nuggets of, of, of godly living. I mean, I just... 
I think we need to remember that the Bible does change people. It changes us from the root. The means of grace bless you. The, you know, how did, how did the great heroes of the faith manage with their deep challenges, including being imprisoned for preaching the gospel? I mean, you know, look at 2 Timothy. That's, that's Paul's last letter, right? And he writes it to Timothy. And he could have said all kinds of things. Prison is miserable. We've got to craft a gospel that keeps people out of here. You've got to help people to understand how to make peace with their culture. He didn't. I mean, he might have said, you know, I'm, I've got a, folk, a couple of folks in here who are gay Christians. They're great men. I don't understand what... He didn't say those things. He said the word is sufficient. It's not just inerrant. It's not just true. It's not just authoritative. It's sufficient. So as you are working through the hardships, you know, we all struggle. We don't want to see our children struggle with things we don't understand. Um, it's just so painful. I have a daughter who's had to have uh, severe surgeries, and, and I know that she has undergone a kind of pain I'll never understand. And, it, and it's, so, it's so tempting to just pray, Lord, can't you just give her a normal life? But you know what? The Lord wants to give her something else. My yeah. daughter has more faith and grit, I think, than I'll ever have. She's 13. Um, so I, I'm just saying these things because I, yeah. I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult to watch your children go through something that you don't understand, that you haven't experienced, a trail you haven't blazed. Remember, the Lord is leading from the front of the line. Don't be a pragmatist. You know, right now, sit down, stop listening to us and start li- reading Second Timothy. The word is sufficient. Those were Paul's last words. He was about to be executed under Nero. He knew that. That wasn't a mystery. And he chose for us to have his last words this. The word is sufficient. Hmm. So you need to take a little wine for your tummy. Do it. But the word is sufficient. Yeah. So please, parents, believe that. And, and youth workers, too. And, and be mindful of something else. You cannot give a good answer to a bad question. So if you need to help people rewrite their questions, do it. Give an example of that. You know, yeah, like absolutely. Like um, I mean, I think the best example is, let me start with the idea that gay is simply who you are. Yeah. And that, and that it is, it is um, you're hardwired. I mean, I hear this all the time. I'm hardwired to be gay. You know, the scriptures don't talk about how statistically they're going to be, and then pick your number. And by the way, it just keeps growing. Um, X percent of people who are hardwired to be gay. That's not at all what the scriptures say. The scriptures say we're all born downstream of Genesis 3. Fight. Learn to hate your sin without hating yourself. And the other thing we need to do is help our churches to not be places of crushing loneliness for people who are fighting their sin. People of God, if you're fighting your sin, you're a hero of the faith. You're not somebody who's supposed to be despised or demeaned. Guide people. Help them to not use what we call ontological language or um, state of being language to describe sin. Don't tell me you're a person who lives with SSA. If you're a Christian, tell me you're a person who fights 
same-sex attraction. Help people with their language. You know, words create worlds. Um, George Orwell was right. You change the language, you're going to change the logic. Help people unpack that. Um, the transgender debate. Um, you know, Paul McHugh is a helpful guide with this. He used to be the... Um, used to be a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins oh, University. Yeah. Remember yeah. that guy? So, yes, um, yes. And I, we were talking about Peter Linus over in the you, UK. We've had him on the podcast, and oh, he talks quite extensively about yeah. what Paul McHugh is. Paul McHugh's really, really helpful. He's a, and, and so is um, Walt Heyer right now in these debates. But what I love about Paul McHugh is he talks, and I think this is the helpful analogy, he says that transgenderism today is a lot like anorexia in the past. You know, if your daughter comes home with anorexia you don't mock her you don't despise her you don't you don't you 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 are careful with her you understand that she is seeing something that you do not see you understand that she is in a delusion you don't join her in the delusion but you don't mock her for it and certainly you do not encourage her to get liposuction Mm -hmm. right and that so parents be careful you know i understand the lord understands the bible understands that somebody who is under the influence of a mental illness, and it is a mental illness that is going to produce gender dysphoria, that person cannot change their mind by themselves, and they cannot change their body by themselves. But please don't think that changing their body is the first place to start. Yeah. That is, you know what that is? That is the gay rights movement playing you. You know, 25 years ago, the transgender community, they were the pathetic cousins of the gay rights movement. Those were the cousins without last names and shoes. You pretended you didn't know them. Now they're the sacred, you know, blessed, beloved, lost, you know, sisters and brothers. Why? Because SOGI laws depend on them. You cannot have sexual orientation, gender identity laws without the transgender community. So let me tell you what, first off, the gay rights movement is playing the transgender community, but Jesus never will. And you need to know that this is going to be a frontline battle, and it's going to be hard. But churches need to be ready. Are we ready for refugees from the transgender movement to come into our churches? We better be, because there's no genital mutilation in the New Jerusalem. The gospel is the best news for somebody who has just generally mutilated themselves. But don't don't ever despair in what it means to, again, hang on to people. And if I can just share you yeah. with you briefly, I was at a speaking engagement, and at the end of this engagement about a year ago, a, 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 clearly a man dressed as a woman came to the microphone and just started grandstanding about how happy and why I don't understand and blah, blah, blah. And, so, and I just, I was at the end of a long conversation, and I just said, look, I would love to talk to you privately in the pastor's office. Could we do that? And this person said, I would love to. And so we started to walk to the pastor's office. And as we were doing this, a big burly man, tatted up, starts marching towards us. Security gets a little, you know, excited. And all of a sudden, he's got tears running down his eyes. He looks at this transgendered woman and he says, Bob, what happened to you, man? And all of a sudden, Bob says, no, I'm not Bob, I'm Tanya. And this man uses an expletive, and, and I would say a yeah. very carefully crafted and appropriate one at this time, and says, we committed our lives together together. Mm. Whoa, this is news I needed. You and I, I was at your wedding. What's going on with your wife and kids? You're not happy. 
more expletives. We say, hey, come join us in the pastor's office. Let's talk. Because what this man was doing for, for this person who now, who now goes by the name of Tanya is holding history. Yeah. saying, I don't believe you're happy. I, you know why I don't believe you're happy? Because if there's a war going on between your body and your mind, you can't be happy. And by God's grace, this friend that just providentially seemed to come out of the blue but was determined by God to be there that night, and that pastor agreed that they were going to help Bob, who likes to go by Tanya, get back to himself hmm. because that's the solution. So you know what? Before people developed a bad case of gender dysphoria, let me tell you something, the culture did. We started to despise the idea that being born male and female comes with ethical and moral responsibilities and constraints. Even when they're hard to pull off, they're a blessing. We need to get back to some sense. Yeah. Could you say something? Uh, I'm guessing you're familiar with this. Lisa Lippman's research at Brown recently on what she calls rapid onset gender oh, dysphoria. Yes. With, oh, yes. Oh, my God. You know, because so, yes, youth yes. workers are seeing Let this. Me, oh, well, not and only when you workers. mention anorexia, I think of that. Yes. You know, so like anorexia, I've got to tell you. cutting, you I, know, self injury, uh, yes. social contagions. Yes. I've got to tell you this. I was at a speaking event also. Um, and the director of a health center at a major university, not a Christian, raised her hand and said, I am the director of the health center at this particular, I won't name it. I'm not a Christian. I don't want to hear your gospel, but I want you to answer this question. Dr. Butterfield, why is it that one out of four women who come into my health clinic with um, anxiety and depression leave three months later telling me that they're transgendered and they want uh, they want a double mastectomy and a hysterectomy. And this was a question that was given to me four months ago. All right, this is really serious. Yeah. And here is why Satan is all over this. Don't buy it. This You, you need to hold your children to the fire. Not, I mean, you need to hold them away from the fire. Um, you need to stand with them. You need to love them. You need to stay connected to them. But... In no case is genital mutilation the answer. We are dealing with mental health issues, but we are dealing with the social contagion. Yeah. I had a, a seventh grader, a 13-year-old girl, come to me on my block. Mrs. Butterfield, my, I have a question. My mom said she couldn't answer it. I have to ask you, is it possible that 60% of my seventh grade class are lesbians? And I said, no, Steph, it's not possible that 60% of your 7th grade class are lesbian, but it's very possible that 60% of your 7th grade class does not want to be called a bigot. So understand what happens yeah. when you decide that gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered is a category of personhood. Yeah. First, you establish that this is who some people are. And then you establish that who they are is in need of civil rights. And then you decide that the gospel can't understand who they are, so it doesn't fit in here. So any gospel application has to go right to the beginning. We need to help people with better questions. We need to help them. And it's a, it's a simple question, and I ask this of people all the time. How do you know gay is who you are and not how you are? Would you be willing to spend as much time as it takes exploring that, working on that? Because here's what I know about you. You were made in the image of God. You have God's soul given to you. And God wants you to realize your potential 
and it's not going to be anything like what you think and maybe it's not going to be anything like what I think either but it's not going to be this hmm. it's not going to be this yeah that's good these are good words to parents and good words to youth workers I want to thank you I know we've come to the end of our time um, any final word or resources you would want to recommend beyond yeah. what you've mentioned Absol- already that would be helpful to people? Sure, absolutely. And I we'll would... link to them all. Okay, great, great. Yeah. Um, Harvest USA. Yes, we talk about Harvest all the time. We've had those guys on the podcast. All right, excellent. Um, local church. Yes. Tying into your local church. Um, I think those are, and, and also I want you to t- I want you to know there are some things you need to avoid. See, this is the problem. We're very quick to recommend things, but we don't want to be meanies. I'm going to be a meanie. Anytime somebody uses the term gay Christianity as a term of being, flee, run. You want to pray for that person? Great. Do it on the, as, as the door is swinging behind you. And here's why. You want the means of grace to give complete liberty. That means that you are not buying into unholy notions and unhealthy notions of identity. If your personal identity is rooted in a sin that God hates, you are going to get, and this is very sad and I've seen it, I see it over and over again. It's a little bit like deciding you're gonna take a picnic lunch and you've got this six lane highway. You need to get across it. But then after about lane three, you're tired. You think, you know what? There's no traffic right now. Looks pretty good. Let's sit down and spread out the picnic table here. Don't do it. Don't buy these things. They are not going to help you in the end. There is deep-rooted theological um, implosion inherent in them. This is not only an anemic theology, It is at best spoiled milk. You need the power of the word of God. You need it deeply. You need it well. Mm. So yes, there are things to embrace and there are things to avoid. Any resources other that you would, besides Harvest or? Uh, Harvest USA, Christopher Yuan's book, yes. especially his most okay. recent book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Okay, I have not read that You've one. You've got to read so that one. Okay, that would good. Be great. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, we've chatted with Rosaria Butterfield, and what, what a blessing. We're going to, as we said before, include links to all these things, and just go to our homepage, cpyu.org. Look for the player for this particular episode of Youth Culture Matters, and everything will be listed underneath that. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.